Welcome, everyone. Page 34 in your notebooks. If you don't have a notebook, there's some over here. We have tonight and tomorrow, or next week, and that's it. So just uh, two more sessions together to uh, finish off our introduction to the Reformation. Before we get into where we left off, men, tonight after we're finished, if any of you can stick around briefly to help set up tables and chairs in the auditorium. Friday night, the ladies have an event, the ladies' Christmas social, and that's going to require 20 or 24 round tables and then chairs around them. won't take very long to set it up, especially if we get enough bodies. The class across the wall there, they're going to be announcing the same thing, so we should be able to get it finished off, okay? So as soon as we're done, if some of you guys can head over there, that'd be great. As far as the way I sound, I still have the residue of this cold, but I feel great. So I'm good, and I'm even willing to talk to you after we're done, unlike last week, uh, because I'm not contagious anymore. Sorry, I was listening to online. Yeah. I must have missed the part about your cold. Yeah, it's like, what? Who is... I'm like, why is he being so rude? <laughs> I'm not talking to any of you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was pretty rude, but uh, it was an explanation to my rudeness. So, yeah, it's good. So, page thirty-four is where we left off last week. <clears throat> Let me uh, review a little bit to bring us up to where we left off. But the aftermath of the Reformation, and then following that, the Radical Reformation. Remember the Radical Reformation. And the radical reformers were saying that the original reformers didn't go far enough. So thus the radical reformation. And the aftermath of the radical reformation resulted in a good bit of confusion because now each person becomes the arbiter of his own views of God and religion rather than a hierarchy. So in, in the aftermath of the Reformation, and especially the Radical Reformation, you now no longer have a magisterium, you now no longer have church officials who tell you about your relationship with God. You now need to define that for, for yourself. You now need to go to the Bible for, for yourself. Well, that's all true, that you need to, each of us needs to go to the Bible for ourselves, so that was a one of the many great recoveries of the Reformation, but it does have a downside to it. And that downside to it is it can result in a lot of confusion because now as everybody goes to the Bible themselves, they all come away with their own, with their own view. So the Reformation emphasis on equal access to God and that Reformation emphasis on equal access to God. Every person has equal access to God. And they have direct access to God. Priesthood of the believer. That was a big thing Martin Luther taught. Priesthood of the believer. Every believer is a believer priest. So you don't have to go through, again, someone who's part of the hierarchy, a priest, in order to, to get to God. But that emphasis on equal access easily became, in the Radical Reformation, equal standing, equal maturity within the church. 
So this right idea, this good idea of having equal access to God, every believer has access to God by virtue of being a priesthood, a priest. That easily became, in the minds of, of some, equal maturity in the church. And that resulted in, really, a view of no authority. Everybody is their own authority. Everybody reads the Bible for themselves, they make it up for themselves, and you don't need to depend on somebody above you to tell you anything about that. So here's uh, Mark Knoll in this uh, book, Turning Points, Decisive Moments in Church History. And he says this, The Protestant watchword sola scriptura, remember that's Latin for the Bible alone, scriptures alone, The Protestant watchword sola scriptura, or the Bible alone, began to mean no authority except the Bible, instead of the meaning no authority over the Bible, which had earlier prevailed in Protestantism. Now, do you see the difference there? No authority except the Bible versus no authority over the Bible. No authority over the Bible, of course, is certainly true. So the Pope is not above the Bible. The magisterium of the church is not above the Bible. The Bible's the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. There's no pastor that's above that. Nobody's above God's word. But though that's right, no authority above the Bible, it's incorrect to say there's no authority except the Bible, that the Bible's the only authority. The Bible's the highest authority. But the Bible itself, does it not? Does not the Bible itself describe other authorities? Within the church, even? But you can see how that happens. A kind of democratization of religion. Means everybody kind of votes their own way, does their own thing. And so you end up with kind of a bewildering array of options. Lots of now splinter groups, and somebody gets upset with this group, and they're not doing it the right way. God's telling me something different, so I'll go and start my own thing. And that's what you that's what you have now. You have people just starting their own things. I mean, I know of people who just start their own things. Yeah, I'll just decide to have my own Bible study, then I'll call it a church, then I'll be the pastor of this so-called church. It's, it's, it's sad. But, and it results from this otherwise very, very good and important principle. But you wind up with this bewildering array of options. And I had said to you last week that I would give you a quick grid filter to try to help you just kind of quickly gauge where a particular church organization is. And we didn't get to that. So let me let me give you that now. Uh, three things that you should ask about if you want to just gauge where a particular church is now in this morass of denominations and isms and sects within Christianity. I mean, the first thing to ask about is soteriology. That just means salvation, but I like to say soteriology, so you know I went to seminary, okay? And I got my money's worth, all right? But it just means soteriology is just the doctrine of salvation. So that's the first thing you want to ask about, and what do you want to ask about it? You want to ask, 
You want to find out whether it's Arminian or Calvinist. Remember, we talked about that. So you want to find out, is it Arminian or is it Calvinist? Remember who the good guys are? I remember, okay? The Calvinists are the good guys. And here's why. Because in all forms of Arminianism, Arminians, just to remind you, several weeks ago we saw the historical personage of Jacobus Arminius. So this is named after a man named Arminius. It's not an ethnic group. It's not the Armenians. It's different. Arminian, with an I. And uh, Arminians teach free will. They teach that your free will, because you have a free will, you may, and this free will is so sacrosanct that God would never violate your free will. And therefore, you maintain this free will throughout your life so much so that by your free will, you accept Christ and by your free will, you can what? You can reject it. You can give it back. To put it another way, you can lose your salvation. You can be saved, but you can be unsaved later. You can lose your salvation. So that's one of the things you'll want to find out. Does this church believe you can lose your salvation? What does it believe about free will? Now, I taught on this just this past Sunday morning during the second hour in Master Plan for Life. So I won't bore you with more of that. Most of you were were in there for that. Uh, It may sound strange to you to say that free will is not quite right because we're so immersed with that idea. But the truth is, yes, we all have a will and we all exercise our will. But you can only exercise your will within your nature. Do you know that's even true of God? God exercises his will, but he can only choose within the confines of his nature. He he can't do anything outside of who he is. That's a good thing, though. Because otherwise God would be able to lie, for example. He can't lie because it's contrary to his nature, so he couldn't choose to lie if he wanted to. So you can't, I can't, God can't choose outside of your nature. What is your nature according to the Bible? Sinful. Spiritually dead. You can't choose outside of that. Therefore, you don't have a free will to receive Jesus. Jesus is, God is going to have to change your will for you to do that. But in salvation, that's what he does. That's what Calvinism teaches. We'll see this in Master Plan for Life in a few weeks. That God changes your, makes alive your dead spirit so that you can now do what you couldn't do before. So the first thing you want to check on is soteriology, Arminian, Calvinist, eternal security, because every form of Arminianism always involves some form of works. Some form of works for your salvation. Either to obtain it or to maintain it. I'll explain. It always involves some form of works either to obtain it or maintain it. You know, in uh, in many Arminian uh, denominations, 
Your works are necessary in order for you to gain salvation. Uh, In fact, uh, they don't believe that you can know that you have salvation in this life, in the here and now, right now. You can't know that until after you die. And so everything you're doing now is a testing as to whether or not you'll actually get it. So the thing you have right now, according to them, is not eternal life. What you have now is the possibility of eternal life, but you won't know that until later. Now the Bible teaches eternal life for each individual that receives Jesus begins when? Begins at the moment he trusts Christ. At the moment he or she believes, they now have as a present possession eternal life. It's not something you're going to find out about later. But if it's something you're going to find out about later, then what is going to determine if you get it or not? It's going to be your works. So that's why I say every form of Arminianism always has some type of works to obtain it or to keep it. And that's why I am... And so let me explain that last part, the keep it part. If you can lose it, what would cause you to lose it? It would be works or failure to do the works, right? So who's maintaining this thing? So when you go to a free will Baptist church, you guys have ever seen those? That's what we're talking about. These are Baptist churches, but distinguishing themselves by putting on the sign free will to let you know we're not those Calvinist people. I thought they were charismatic on this time. Really? Yeah, I really did. The free will types were charismatic? No, they're not necessarily. Although I'm told, I know of one free will Baptist church that shall not be named because they don't name themselves free will Baptist anymore. They just call themselves blank church. And then on the sign it says a free will Baptist in small letters, a free will Baptist community. And if you go, if you were to go there, I'm told, I'm told that there are actually charismatics who are in the church, even though the church's doctrinal statement doesn't believe that. But no, the free will Baptists and the charismatics are not the same thing. Although charismatics, Pentecostals also believe you can lose your salvation. They're also Arminian. Arminianism is larger in terms of numbers than is Calvinism which stands to reason since Calvinism is correct. <laughs> you know, truth is always a minority. No, I'm dead serious. And Arminianism just makes sense to the human mind. I choose it. I give it back. We'll see how it works out. In the end, my good outweighs my bad. I'll get in. That's the way most people naturally think about it. But it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel of of grace. So this is why, then, I'm so death on Arminianism. Because when you start thinking about it, it actually changes the terms of the gospel. It's not the small matter that many people think it is. It's actually a big deal. So the first question to ask is soteriology. 
salvation. Ask Arminian Calvinist eternal security. Second, look at liturgy. Liturgy, liturgical, means worship. And in particular, the ordinances or sacraments of of the church. Baptism and communion. That'll give you an idea of where a church is. We've seen in the Reformation that Roman Catholicism teaches the error, gross error, of the Mass where Christ is re-crucified in the elements. We've seen that. We've seen that Luther and Calvin and Swingley all come out of the Roman Catholic Church and they kind of have a hangover of the Roman Catholic Church. So in their definition of communion, it's not transubstantiation, thankfully, but it's still this kind of weird thing. Consubstantiation for the Lutherans, the spiritual presence view of Calvin and our Presbyterian friends. Zwingli got it right with the memorial view. This is a memorial remembering what Christ did. That's communion. But then there's the other ordinance, uh, baptism. And on whom is baptism performed? Infants or believers? Is it believers' baptism? And then what's the mode of baptism? Is it sprinkling, pouring, immersion? So that will give you a further idea. And then the last one would be polity or the way the church is governed. And we have seen several times that in the New Testament there are only two church offices, two, pastors and deacons. That's it. That the office of pastor has several New Testament terms that are interchangeable. That you've got elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, presbyter. These are all for the same office. They're not different offices. And then you've got and then you've got deacons. <clears throat> so if you have a church that's governmental structure that has an overseer above the other overseers, well now you've got something more than these two offices. Or you've got presbyters above the presbyters in the church. And the New Testament, the New Testament structure is this flat structure. A church, each church is autonomous, that is self-governing, and each church has pastors and deacons within it. So if you want to get some a lay of the land on a particular church, ask yourself those three things. Salvation, soteriology, liturgy, and then and then polity. All right, page 34. So we've seen, uh, looked at the beginning of the Baptist movement in America, having come from England. And now Baptists in particular parts of America, Baptists in the colony, middle colonies. They enjoy greater freedom in the middle colonies due to the benevolence of the Quakers. The Quakers were more benevolent to the Baptists due to their separatism 
That is, they believed in separation of church and state. So they weren't going to impose on other groups like Baptists. And because of their pacifism, they weren't going to harm them anyway. So Baptists were treated better by Quakers in the middle colonies. And then you have this church in New Jersey that was founded in 1688 and still exists. Pennepec Baptist Church. Elias Keach was the pastor. He was the son of a famous pastor in London named Benjamin Keach. Notice number one there. Keach was saved. He was converted under his own preaching. He's the pastor of the church. He's studying his preaching and preaching, and he realizes he's not converted. And he gets saved under his own preaching. That church gave birth to several others, four, four more. And those five together formed, bottom of page 34, something called the Philadelphia Baptist Association in 1707. Those five created the Philadelphia Association, and its purpose was to discipline errant ministers, to warn churches of imposters, act as ordination councils, and so on, So it was these churches voluntarily associating together so that they could help each other. It's an association, Philadelphia Association. Now notice, it's not violating the autonomy of the church because they are voluntarily associating with each other. It's not a hierarchy above the churches. It's the churches cooperating together. Here's an excerpt of the minutes of that first meeting in July 1707. It was agreed that a person that is a stranger, that has neither letter of recommendation, nor is known to be a person gifted and of good conversation, shall not be admitted to preach, not be entertained as a member in any of the baptized congregations in communion with each other. Let me stop there. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying we're going to agree that you're not going to have people who are going to come from one church to another church unless they come on good terms. You can't leave a mess in your wake at one church and then just decide there's more where you came from, I'll go to another one. You know this is what happens sometimes today. Because of the proliferation of churches, now you can have people who say, I don't like what you're doing. Create whatever kind of mess they want. If you don't like it, there's more where you came from. I'll go somewhere else. And very often there's no checking up on any of that. Where you came from and and what you did and and why you did it. And these guys are saying we're not going to do it that way. That it's important that people who, this is my word, not theirs, people who are troublemakers in Christ's church don't, aren't able to keep perpetuating that from church to church. So there has been for centuries uh, this idea of letters of recommendation for people to go from one church to another. I send letters of recommendation. We receive letters of recommendation from people who are currently members of another church coming to our church. And 
part of that is to keep people from creating a mess in one place and then just finding an escape hatch to go somewhere else and perhaps start do the same kinds of things. Have you ever thought about any of that? Have you ever I thought about that church, you're not going to write a letter, are you? So Aaron wants to know if he moves down to Florida and begins to attend our former associate associate pastor's church down in Jacksonville. Uh, he will he will not take you in after he gets my letter. <laughs> however, however, a little money could change the context of that. <laughs> we don't do indulgences, but membership recommendations we can do. Okay? <laughs> But, you know, have you ever thought about this? See, um, so the reason I'm doing this is I want you to see, I want you to think about these, these matters. Because people don't think much about membership matters for a church. Some people, to the extent that they've thought about it at all, their thinking is, that's just a man-made thing. Membership. Who says you've got to be a member? When did they have membership in the in the New Testament? You know, where does it say in the Bible I got to sign something? Right. So that's why we've got a whole appendix in our newcomers orientation material about this issue. It's multiple pages long, giving you principles from the New Testament that point to the necessity of membership. I'll give you a few. Uh, one. The New Testament teaches that people can actually be excommunicated. That is, people can be removed from the fellowship. Now, what does it imply if you can be removed? That you are in. So just to be blunt about it, we need to know whether we can kick you out or not. <laughs> you got to have membership before you can have discipline or excommunication. You've got to be in fellowship before you can be disfellowship. Further, Hebrews chapter 13 says that pastors will give an account before God for the souls that are entrusted to them. So that's for me, that's for Pastor Larry, that's for Pastor Rich. How do we know who we're responsible for? Am I equally responsible for the people who have committed themselves to be shepherded at this church versus somebody who wanders in and just decides to attend? Are we are those on equal footing as far as my responsibility? Now, do I care about all of them? Of course. But who am I responsible for? I'm responsible for the people who are part of the flock. And we got to have some way to know who's part of the flock. There are a bunch of those kinds of principles that are taught very clearly in the New Testament. Now, it's true. There's nowhere in the New Testament that says sign on the dotted line. How did you sign on the dotted line in New Testament times? What was the equivalent of that? How did you become a member of the church in New Testament times? I'm asking. You got baptized. So, yeah, there's no signing on the dotted line because you became a member when you got baptized. The reason we have now these forms of membership, notice the, the word I used, forms of membership. The function of membership goes all the way back to the New Testament. 
They had membership. But you became a member through baptism. But now the form of membership has had to be extended in our day. Extended. People become members through baptism. That's true. But now there have to be other forms of membership in addition to baptism because we have an issue they didn't have 2,000 years ago. Two issues, as a matter of fact. Multiplicity of churches, one, and mobility to get to those churches. Think about the situation 2,000 years ago. You didn't have that. You You were baptized and you were in the church you were in. And most people would be in that church for the rest of their lives. And they didn't have the mobility. One, they didn't have another alternative very close by. And they didn't have the mobility to get there anyway. But now we live in a time where you have both of those. So that being the case, you may have somebody who was already baptized, a member of another church, but now they move physically to another place. They're not getting rebaptized. But they need to commit themselves somehow to saying, I'm part of this flock. And I'm under your care. And you're not going to be responsible to God for how you shepherded me. And yes, if I sin in unrepentant ways, I can be kicked out of here as well. It's not going to be through baptism. It's going to be through some other way. Signing a piece of paper. Standing before the church and the church voting on you. That's what we do. But notice, those are all forms to carry out the very same function. The New Testament does not give us all of the forms that ministry is to take. What it does give us are the functions we're to carry out. And then, in the case of membership, signing, voting, whatever it is, we have to create forms to carry those out. Does that make sense? Questions? All right. Anyone awake? Middle of page 35. Or excuse me, first third of page 35. That next paragraph in bold. In those minutes of that first meeting of the Philadelphia Association of Baptist Churches, it was also concluded that if any difference shall happen between any member and the church he belongs to, and they cannot agree, the person so aggrieved may at the general meeting appeal to the brethren of the several congregations And with such as they shall nominate to decide the difference, that the church and the person so grieved do fully acquiesce in their determination. So the idea is, how are you going to handle disputes? They came up with a way to handle disputes within the church. If you can't solve it within the church, then let's help each other try try to solve it. This association produced the first major Baptist doctrinal confession in America, the Philadelphia Confession of 1742. I told you that that is... Exactly the same thing as the Second London Confession of 1689. I told you that last week. So middle of page 35. The Baptists gained in both numbers and respect as a result of the Great Awakening and the American Revolution. They expanded and had to attend to the problems that such expansion inevitably affords. So that's what's next here. Baptists and the American Revolution and then Baptist expansion. Now, Baptists and the American Revolution. Uh, at, the, uh, at the founding of our, our country, 
Many of you know this, but many of the colonies at the founding of America had state-funded churches. And most of those were congregational or Episcopalian. And particular colonies had their own state-funded official church of that particular state. Virginia was Episcopalian. Massachusetts was congregational. You pay taxes to the state for the congregational church, for the Episcopal church, whatever the church was of your particular state. Which, by the way, then, uh, if you're familiar with your Constitution a little bit, you know that there was the ratification of the original Constitution in 1787. But then a few years after that, 1791, there are the changes, the first changes to it, the first amendments to it. The first ten amendments all happened at the same time. Those first ten are called the Bill of Rights. The first of those ten is the first change, the first amendment. The first amendment starts with this word, Congress. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's how it starts. Congress shall make no law. Now notice who shall make no law. Congress. And what is Congress in charge of? Is Congress Congress in charge of a particular state? No. Each state has its own legislature, has its own sort of Congress. Congress is in charge of the country. Congress shall make no law. It didn't say it didn't say anything about states making a law. That's why even after the first amendments amendment was passed, you still had state churches for many years after that. And it wasn't until the 14th amendment after the Civil War after 1865 you have the 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment applies the First Amendment and the other nine of the Bill of Rights to the states as, as well. But prior to that, for much of our history, you had state-funded churches in the different <laughs> states of the, the Union. And I bring all that up because <clears throat> Baptists were not in favor of that. Baptists were never in favor of that. Baptists were strong proponents of separation of church and state. We're not in favor of state-supported, state-financed churches. So one of the doctrinal distinctives of Baptists is separation of, of church and state. Now, I have listed there, middle of page 35, a couple of Baptist leaders during the American Revolution, Isaac Bacchus. Isaac Bacchus in 1773. Remember your history a little bit? That's just three years before the Declaration of Independence. He preaches a sermon against state-supported churches. And then you have John Leland. John Leland was a Baptist pastor. And John Leland had a famous interaction with a guy named James Madison. Now, you'll know James Madison as our fourth president, but also as the primary architect of the Constitution. 
people get mixed up. Jefferson was the primary architect of the Declaration and Madison of the Constitution. Okay, Leland, this Baptist guy, John Leland, in Virginia, which is where Madison was from, they have this famous interaction. And Madison was, he later became president, but he was a representative, a congressman in Washington from Virginia. And he's the primary architect, as they say, of the Constitution. John Leland and the Baptists were concerned that the Constitution, as originally drafted and originally adopted, did not have sufficient safeguards for non-state-supported churches, like Baptists. So here's what uh, here's here's this uh, story that I want to read to you quickly. This guy talks about the man who wrote this talks about traveling through Virginia with his family, and he says we came upon a small park with a sign labeled Leland Madison Memorial Park, named after James Madison and this very same John Leland. He says I quickly pulled aside to the side of the road and I led my family over to a monument commemorating John Leland's role in the crafting of the First Amendment. So at this park in Virginia, there is this sign, this monument. And it says, John Leland, courageous leader of the Baptist doctrine, ardent advocate of the principles of democracy, vindicator of separation and church and, of church and state. Near this spot in 1788... Now, 1788, one year after the Constitution has been adopted, but three years before the Bill of Rights are adopted. Near this spot in 1788, John Leland and James Madison, the father of the American Constitution, held a significant interview which resulted in the adoption of the Constitution by the state of Virginia. Then Madison, a member of Congress, presented the First Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing religious liberty, free speech, and a free press. This satisfied Leland and his Baptist followers. Now, what was that interview, that meeting that they had about? What were they doing? I read on. We have the First Amendment in large part due to the efforts of American Baptists such as Isaac Backus and John Leland. Leland, a prominent Baptist preacher at the turn of the 18th or 19th century, that would be the 1800s, had petitioned his Virginia legislator, James Madison, directly regarding his concern that more needed to be done to ensure religious liberty in the new country than the religious test of Article 6, Paragraph 3 of the Constitution. In the, con the original Constitution, there was and still is, that there shall be no religious test for office, for holding office. But that wasn't enough, said, said Leland. Since Baptists represented a significant portion of the vote in Madison's district, Leland's threat to run for Madison's seat in the House of Representatives resulted in a visit by Madison to his home. So Leland had said, I'm going to run against you if you don't change this thing. Madison came calling. Coming out of that meeting was a compromise that included Leland agreeing not to run for Madison's seat and Madison agreeing to champion Leland's and his fellow Baptist concern for religious liberty. 
Madison kept his word and he pushed for the Bill of Rights. Without Baptist involvement in the political process, it is at least possible that the protection of religious liberty from Congress would not, would not exist. Baptists have historically defended the principle of religious liberty since Baptists have always believed in churches made up only of professing baptized believers. They've always rejected the idea of a state church union which results in a church composed of all citizens. In the 16th century, the European Anabaptists opposed the use of the sword to mandate matters of the conscience. 17th century proto-Baptists like Thomas Helwes and Roger Williams, these are people we've already looked at, spoke directly to the governing authorities appealing for religious liberty. Baptists have always stood on the side of religious liberty for all. In fact, it was a group of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, who were concerned about the infringement of the newly formed federal government upon the consciences of American citizens, to whom Thomas Jefferson responded in a letter with the famous expression, separation of church and state which has become such an important part of the American discussion concerning religious liberty. This expression was a summary of the rights guaranteed in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that's the history. If you're a Baptist, <clears throat> which our church is, that's the history of that. And so bear that in mind as you see now Baptists who are desiring to become wedded to the government. And you see pastors who are involved in politics the way many pastors are, Baptist pastors are today. Uh, you know, not to just beat on one, but Jerry Falwell Jr. and his just falling over endorsements of President Trump, no matter what President Trump does. You can tell where I am on that. Okay. That's a Baptist school where he's doing that. All right, back to the notes. So Baptists were commended by both Washington and Jefferson for their efforts during the American Revolution. Well, then you have Baptist expansion. Several factors in the early 1800s contributed to a zeal amongst the Baptists for expansion. America was now recognized as an independent nation. Burgeoning trade with other nations brought the resources necessary for expansion. There was land acquisition to the West, things like the Louisiana Purchase. And there was the doctrine of manifest destiny. That's in quotes, but that was a phrase that was used. The idea was that God has ordained the expansion of America. It's manifest destiny. And all of that created an atmosphere of great enthusiasm for the expansion of all types, including religion. Aided by the successes of the Great Awakening. We're going to talk about the Great Awakening later, but that was a revival in the middle 1700s. And aided by that, and newfound respect due to their participation in the Revolution, the Baptists began to aggressively expand. In fact, by 1800, Baptists were the largest denomination in America. That's amazing that that happened, but it did. That Baptists became the largest denomination in America. And by the way, that's still the case, largest Protestant denomination uh, in the country today. So this expansion included, bottom of page 35, missions societies to spread the gospel. Regular Baptists sent missionaries to the south. When it says regular Baptists, that means uh, particular Baptists or Calvinist Baptists. 
these efforts were wildly successful, top of page 36, even to the point of converting many general Baptist churches to the regular Baptist position. What were general Baptists? They were Arminian. Some of them became Calvinists. And then you had Congregationalists as well. You had Baptists, but you also had Congregationalists expanding to the south. One was a man named Luther Rice and Adoniram Judson and his wife Anne. In the year 1812, they were commissioned to go to India. Now, look at B there. Luther Rice and the Judsons both became Baptists on their way to India. They were not Baptists when they started. They were Congregationalists. And on their way to India, they were studying the Bible. So, read the, read the part of bold here. Knowing that they would meet with the Baptist veteran William Carey, when they got to India. William Carey's already there. Judson studied his Greek New Testament on the subject of baptism because he knows he's going to have to argue with Carey about this. Coming to the startling conclusion that immersion of believers is the biblical form. In a letter, Anne Judson said, Mr. Judson's doubts began on our passage from America. I tried to have him give it up and, and to rest satisfied in the old sentiments and I frequently told him if he became a Baptist, I would not. Apparently, she later changed her mind, as both were immersed as Baptists in Calcutta. Luther Rice, arriving in India on a different ship, also embraced Baptist views. It's an amazing story. Anyway, I think. By 1800, the two had, had joined forces, the two being the Baptists and the Congregationalists. In something called the Triennial Convention, 1814, which later became the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, how did the Triennial Convention become the Southern Baptist Convention? We're going to see that at the bottom of the page in a moment. But the Triennial Convention was formed by the union of the several of missions efforts in several states by separate and regular Baptists, formed these agencies. Dissension developed within it over denominationalism, culminating in a coup for the anti-denominational forces in 1826, extreme Calvinism, and biblicism were other causes of an anti-missions sentiment. Extreme Calvinism, that's hyper-Calvinism. It's unbiblical. So then you get the Southern Baptist Convention. And many of you know that name. Many uh, people think that means Baptists in the South. It doesn't just mean Baptists in the South, although it obviously started there. That's why it's called that. But... We have Southern Baptist churches all around us here in the north. So they're not just in the south, but it did start in the south. So many people think that it just means Baptists who are in the south, but no, this is an actual particular group, a convention, again, of churches who voluntarily, like the Philadelphia Association, associate together, pool their resources together for schools. So over the years, Southern Baptists have had lots of schools around the country. Uh, Baylor University, Furman University, some, some very large universities that whose affiliation with the SBC has weakened over the years, but they started as Southern Baptist schools. Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky is the flagship seminary for the SBC, but they have four others as well. Al Mohler, anybody know who Al Mohler is? Okay, Al Mohler is the president of Southern Seminary in uh, in Louisville. 
bottom of page 36. How did it come about, though? Coupled with the agitation that resulted from the differences outlined above within this triennial convention, only one issue was needed to create a split. All it needed was a spark to split this thing. And slavery provided the stimulus. Application was made to the Triennial Convention to commission a guy named James Reeves, a slave owner, to be a home missionary, to be a missionary commissioned by the convention. Home missionary means he's not going overseas. He's going to plant churches here in the States. The Southerners who instigated Reeves' nomination admitted that it was a test case for slavery. So you see what was happening here. They were having this guy put up to see if the convention would commission him or not, since he was a slave owner. The approval was denied, top of page 37. And a large group of Southern Baptist leaders, Southern just meaning guys from the South, met on May 8, 1945 in Augusta, Georgia, and the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. 1845? 1845. Did I? Oh, it says 19. Yikes. <laughs> 1845. 1845. 1845. So, this is 15 years before the Civil War begins. That the split occurs over, over slavery. Yes, the Southern Baptist Convention was initially pro-slavery. That's how it started. And that's a sad history. Our church is not a Southern Baptist church. And there's been a lot of years and a lot of water under the bridge. There have been a lot of very good developments within the Southern Baptist Convention. Al Moeller and Southern Seminary in Louisville being one of those. It's a, uh, I, I could bore you with stories about that. It's a great thing, though. About how he went in and recovered that seminary from liberalism. Uh, it's a terrific story. And the courage that that guy had to lead that thing is amazing. And so he's done terrific things there. But it started this way. And just as a side commentary, the the legacy of slavery uh, sentiments, pro-slavery sentiments, and bigotry within Baptist churches is still with us to this day. And it's a stain. It's a it's a very, very sad thing. Now, if you know your church history, I've studied some of this and putting things to like this together and took this in seminary. And when you know that, you see then it starts to show you some of the things that are going on and still go on today. And again, this is just as a side. I may get killed for saying these kinds of things, but it's one of the reasons that I get very, very, very concerned when Christian people, people in our church, are very vocal in support of folks who make bigoted kinds of statements. And I'm just saying to you that the cause of Jesus is more important than any political party and than any particular candidate that we favor. Don't allow 
the good name of Christ to get mixed up in that. And when someone makes bigoted statements, then call it what it is. And call them out, no matter if they're your guy or gal or not. It's only in that way that we can show that we have integrity for the gospel. And that we've not just been compromised to make sure that our team wins. Which is much of what we have going on today, unfortunately. All right, I feel better. We have eight minutes left for today. So top of page 37, modern Baptists have been influenced by a number of historical strains, doctrinal and cultural. The effect of revivalism has been profound and it still dictates the way in which many Baptists believe and practice. So now I want to talk a bit about revivalism because it has affected the way churches operate to this very day, particularly Baptist churches. What, what do I mean by revivalism? I mean the idea that the way God works is that he brings these special seasons of spiritual refreshing revival. That's what a revival is. And many churches have structured the way they operate around trying to, and you'll see why I use this word in a little bit, manufacture that revival to make it happen. Now, there were two great revivals uh, in American history, two. One called the First Great Awakening and then the Second Great Awakening. The second great, the First Great Awakening, page 37, was a genuine revival. Now here's a working definition of what a revival is. It's an extraordinarily intensive and normally extensive work of God in powerfully applying his gospel to people, which results in the salvation of sinners and renewed obedience of saints. So in the first great awakening, you had thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ, people getting right with Christ, changing their lives. It changed society. It was so profound in its effects. And it was led by people like Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Whitfield, all Calvinists, by the way. All and, and by the way, it's not a by the way, that's no, that's no accident. And the first great awakening was based on doctrine. It came unexpectedly by God's mercy on a sinful people and in the context of a doctrine of the doctrinal preaching of people like Tennant and Edwards and Whitfield. The message is centered on condemnation of sin, justification by faith, and the new birth. In a profound way, biblical theology produced genuine revival. God can and does do that. And praying for that kind of thing is a great thing to pray for. But you can't make it happen. You do what they did. You preach that way and you ask God to do this. That's the first great awakening. Here's the second great awakening. The second great awakening was not a genuine revival. It was a manufactured revival. There was a shift from doctrine to pragmatism. Pragmatism is do what works. That's what pragmatism is. So Ian Murray, in his book, this Wonderful book, Revival and Revivalism. I think we have copies of it in the Resource Center. He said, seasons of revival became revival meetings. All right, now, back up. 
See, the first Great Awakening, these weren't revival meetings. These were church meetings where the gospel was just being preached. They were just doing their thing, and God blessed it in an extraordinary way. Now, you have revival meetings. You guys ever seen that? You ever heard of that? Oh, yeah, they happen all over the place. I live in Flat Rock. I live right near Gibraltar Road. There's a Baptist church on Gibraltar Road. Just two weeks ago, I'm walking on the pathway along Gibraltar Road. I go by their sign. And they have a week of meetings. They've got the evangelist's name there. The evangelist's name is a guy I went to high school with. And he and I parted ways in our early, our young adulthood because he was going this route and teaching a, a, a watered-down gospel through these revivals. But the revival meetings, churches do them all the time. So seasons of revival became revival meetings. Instead of being surprising, they might now even be announced in advance. How do you say we're going to have a revival? And whereas no one in the previous century had known of ways to secure one, a system was now popularized by revivalists which came near to guaranteeing results. Now how do you do that? Well, keep going. The revivalist know-how and the chief revivalist was a guy named Charles Finney. I don't know if you've heard of Charles Finney in uh, your church history, but this guy has profoundly influenced evangelical Christianity in America to this very day, and as I say, especially among Baptists. But many people have no idea what a heretic this dude was. Charles Finney. Here's his doctrine. First, free will. Finney stated that unbelief was a will not instead of a cannot and could be remedied if a person willed to become a Christian. You see that? That's just, you can do it. Not that God has to do it on you. You can do it. Original sin, the truth is, man's nature is all right and is as well fitted to love and obey God as to hate and disobey. He can do either one. Do you inquire what influence Adam's sin has then had in producing the sin of his posterity? I answer, it has subjected them to aggravated temptation, but has by no means rendered their nature in itself sinful. Do you see what he says there? Adam's sin has this effect on people today. It now renders them, subjects them to aggravated temptation. That is, we have a we can now have a tendency to gravitate towards sin. But it has not rendered our nature in itself sinful. So therefore, if your will is free to do what's right, then you can achieve the next thing, perfectionism. Are you practicing your sins still? If so, you are still a sinner. Well, is that even a question as to whether or not anyone is still practicing sin? But it was for Finney. Sir? you have years for these revivals? Years? Yeah. Aren't they over there? Yeah, but the um, the first Great Awakening is the mid-1700s. This is before the American Revolution, 1740 to 1750. 1740, 1750. And then 100 years, 100 years later, 1840 to 1850, is when the second revolution, uh, <laughs> Great Awakening occurred, led by Finney. Yeah. 
All right, page 38. And then what did Finney teach about justification? Gospel justification is not the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, he said. Did I say that loud enough? I mean, yikes. Under the gospel, sinners are not justified by having the obedience of Jesus Christ set down to their account as if he had obeyed the law for them or in their stead. This is absurd and impossible, he says. Guys and gals, that's the gospel that he's calling absurd. Nor does justification by faith imply that a sinner is justified by faith without good works or personal holiness. Paul does not mean that good works are unnecessary to justification, but that works of law are not good works because they spring from legal considerations. No, we still have to have works. It's just not works of the law, say. Guess who says that? Guess who says that very thing? The Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church does not say that faith is not involved in justification. They do say it's involved in justification. But what they say is faith and works, not faith alone, are what produce justification. And that's what Finney is saying here too. Now, we'll look at then, based on that doctrine, how Finney did what he did, his methodology. And we'll be able to finish. We only have 41 pages, so we only got a few pages left in our final session next week. See you then, Lord willing. Okay?